Hey, Subtextual listeners, this episode has mentions of suicidal ideations, eating disorders, and just like a plenty, plenty mixed bag of like maybe disturbing things. So if that sort of stuff is hurtful or harmful to you in any way, this is a good one to skip. Happy listening. Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. All right, Lizzie, how are you doing? Hi, Sam. Uh, I'm really good. How are you? Just had a beautiful lunch. I feel pretty medium. Lizzie was talking about how she wished there was a Bring It On musical, and we found out (laughs) that there was, and it was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. In 2011, before he, I guess, got as good as he is today. But we didn't come here to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, no. We didn't We didn't come here to talk about the potential of a Bring It On musical. We came here to talk about Girl Interrupted. I, oh, shit. <laughs> I tried, tried to interrupt to. me. <laughs> I tried to interrupt you. Uh, how do you feel about this movie, Lizzie? I love this movie. I, I love this movie. Love it. Tell it me is. what you like about it. Um, well, I rewatched it super recently to just kind of refresh on it. And there's so many more characters that I remember. And I think each character, though you don't get a lot of characterization from them, like you know who they are right away and you like them for all their different reasons. And I just think it's such a stylish movie. It's such a simple movie. And it really leans into the performance of these women, especially Angelina Jolie, who is fucking fantastic she's so good in this film yeah i mean the script is so tight i just adore this movie so much i'm so glad it exists it just incredible incredible obviously we're fans of this movie i've i've loved this movie since i was really young i think this is probably tied in the top five for movies i've seen the most ever and it's one of the films that i know that made me want to go to film school And um, it made me less sad when I was feeling sad growing up. I'm happy to talk about it today. And if you're wondering if it's subtextual, it's like I went back and chose this movie because I knew there was a kiss in it. And I felt like I never really sat down and examined where that kiss came from. So I, I wanted to read the book, the memoir that it was based off of and see like where that relationship was coming from and like how it got the characters there in the film. Wait, you're laying some serious Lizzie bait on me right now. This is based on a book? (laughs) Lizzie, not only is this a book, this (laughs) is a book that I read in a single sitting. And this is like, I don't know if you can see my annotations. It's quite chonky. Wait, you read that all at once? Did you like stay up all night and read it? Yeah, I did. I bought it for this podcast thinking like, oh, it'll take me a few weeks to read. I'll, I'll come around to the episode whenever I do it. And then it came in the mail and I sat down with it and just like, one sitting. I think I like wow. skipped dinner and I like I read it all. Damn, and that's that's not a small book. Um, can I ask you a favor? Of course. Can I borrow? Yes. I thought you're gonna be like, can you move to the left a little bit? I was no. like, yeah. I was prepared to like do something else. Yes, of course you can borrow. I want to read it so bad. <laughs> My annotations are in it. I've read books with your annotations, and they only make things better. Honestly. Oh my gosh, how many books do you have that have annotations from other people that you're like? what? Like, is this for a (laughs) class or are you really just like seeing something totally different from me? No, every time I like every few times I get from thrift books, I'll get like a student's copy and I'll see their Taylor handwriting. Like there's one in particular. I forget what the book was, but like it was a boy's handwriting and he like basically highlighted a whole page. And then on the other side was like lying snake. (laughs) (laughs) 
lying snake. It was like the fourth Harry Potter book or something. Yeah, and he like, after that chapter stopped annotating, I was like, I guess he failed the fucking class. Yeah, I know. He dropped out. It's not looking good for him. Uh, tell me about the book. Like, you said mm-hmm. it's a memoir, question mark? Yeah, so um, Winona Ryder purchased the rights to the book seven years before the movie was even made. So she read the book when it came out in the 90s and like immediately bought the rights to it. And then sat on it for seven years. Like she's Mm -hmm. young in this movie. Like when did she do that? So a little bit about Winona Ryder's like time in her life, which like led her to this place. But like she had just since left Johnny Depp and had checked herself into a psychiatric ward uh, for depression, anxiety. And after she came out, she she read this book and then bought the rights because I think she really related to the story. And then she said that it took about three or four years before it was greenlit with um, the money needed and she handpicked the director. And I think it took her a while to get everything in place. And she even said that she's like had turned down a lot of roles to be available to shoot this. I had no idea that Winona Ryder was involved in the production of it, but that makes me love it all the more. Oh, God, there's, we haven't even started talking about the actual movie. <laughs> and I like want to go home and just watch it again, even though I just like dead ass watched it today. <laughs> it, this movie is is creative as well as being like descriptive. Um, and I say descriptive because like this book is pretty sparse. It's told in like a passive narrative tone. And this director, James Mangold, who Winona Ryder like handpicked, infused a lot of like beautiful, detail-driven storytelling into this film. And so a little bit about James Mangold. Winona Ryder picked him for the director after seeing his 1995 film Heavy. Mm-hmm. But he's since gone on to direct Walk the Line, 310 to Yuma, Wolverine, and the Logan movie. Yeah, he's got a very varied discography. I remember looking him up and being like, huh. Which I appreciate a director like Ang Lee, for example, who doesn't just like sit in one genre and get comfortable. Like every film is a little different. And I feel like this guy does a great job. I've seen most of those movies and I'm like, yeah, they're a little masculine, but like not heavy handedly. I generally enjoy them. And the fact he did this film Mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's perfectly directed in my opinion. Yeah. uh, So... Just one more thing about the movie before we jump into the plot. It was originally, the runtime of it was three hours, as they had to cut a whole hour out of this movie. No, they didn't. <laughs> Where's that version? Who was making them do that? <laughs> Not me. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't sit in the audience and be like, too long. I don't want to watch these beautiful women do any more of this shit. Like, no way. Yeah, it, um, there are some deleted scenes, like 15 minutes of, of deleted scenes, like floating around the internet. But like the whole hour that has been cut out has not been shown to anyone publicly. <sighs> Bummer. I know. So without further ado, let's jump into this movie. Let's. You don't need to be here. Get out! Everything's changing. What do they know about being normal? Get me out of this place! Get yourself out. Let's go. Okay, so the plot of this film, I'm just going to read you the first few lines of dialogue because I think it covers it like quite well. But the first few lines of dialogue are, have you ever confused a dream with real life or stolen something when you've had the cash? Have you ever been blue or thought your train moving while sitting still? Maybe I was just crazy. Maybe it was the 60s. Or maybe I was just a girl. Interrupted. (laughs) Let's go. Let's go. Is that in the book? Is that a line from the book? No. So I I knew you would tee me up perfectly. I didn't even put it in my notes because I knew that like you, Lizzie, <laughs> were going to ask me this question. Uh-huh. No, the um the like titular line 
from the book is not included in the movie, but I'm going to read it for you at the end because I think it requires like a little bit of context, but it makes sense why they didn't go ahead and put it in this movie. Yeah. So the movie starts out with us flashing through time and seeing Susanna Kaysen, who's played by Winona Ryder, who's the main character, flash through these periods in her life, one when she's overdosing on aspirin and, and vodka And one where she's like already in the mental institution and then she finally like snaps back to reality and she's in like a therapist's office sitting across a doctor and the doctor is played by Red Foreman. Yeah, let's say Dr. Red Foreman, you mean? (laughs) Dumbass. It took me out so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, so this doctor is is very immediately condescending and very quickly sizes her up as um, a person in need of some rest. Susanna Kaysen, who wrote this book in the memoir itself, has said that she doesn't really understand why she agreed to go Mm. in the first place because she didn't believe that she was crazy or that she needed rest. And um, he said at one point, like, oh, you'll go for like a week or two. And she Mm. ended up staying for a very long time. So we watch Susanna Kaysen get into a taxi cab and go to Claymore, which is the name of the psychiatric hospital in the film, but the the one in real life is named McLean. Mm-hmm. And I mention this because um, a lot of really famous people have gone to this uh, psychiatric hospital. They include James Taylor, Ray Charles, Anne Sexton, Robert Lowell, David Foster Wallace, Michelle Carter, and I think most notably Sylvia Plath Wow, because of... Um, the bell jar, yeah. you know, it, it was based off of this psychiatric hospital. No way. Because mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking when I first saw it, because I had also read the bell jar for the first and to be honest, the last time. Um, and I kind of felt like, I think the bell jar probably is like a little sooner in time period, maybe the 50s. Yes. But um, they had a very similar tone in that like, I kind of felt like this woman didn't quite know exactly why she was feeling the way she was feeling. She was just like deeply interred with like a feeling of dread and depression and anxiety just by like not wanting to be in the society she's in. Yeah. But I can definitely feel the tone. So it's so interesting to hear that. If I could read you like a little bit of this book, because Susanna in the movie and in the book grapples with the like, why am I here? Like if I am crazy, like what is my diagnosis? And the women around her have very striking personalities and they're very loud characters. And I think that while she loves them, she doesn't really see where she fits in with them. Mm -hmm. She's not as much of a character as any of these people. So there's this part here in the memoir. In her memoir, she describes insanity as falling into like two types. One is velocity and one is viscosity. And velocity is like speed. So like racing thoughts, like competing impulses, high anxiety. And then the other form of insanity that she's like witnessed here is like viscosity. So like a thick, slow depression hopelessness, like immobility. After describing the difference between velocity and viscosity, Susanna Kaysen says, luckily I never had to choose. One or the other would assert itself, rush or dribble through me and pass on. So I think after witnessing like half of her like cohort, I would say of, of patients falling into one or the other, she was starting to feel even more like an imposter syndrome. Like 100%. Could you imagine like not fitting in in your normal life and then putting yourself into a mental facility and also not fitting in? <laughs> like that's just got to feel so shit. And I definitely got that sense in the first act of the film mm-hmm. that she's like looking around like, oh my God, like these people are actually insane with like these crazy life stories. And I'm just like inexplicably trying to kill myself. 
Yeah. And she she often says, like, when the doctors are intaking her and they're saying, well, you're here because you tried to kill yourself. And she even discounts that saying, I had a headache. Yeah. I, you know, and they're like, well, you chased a bottle of aspirin with a bottle of vodka. And she, it doesn't seem to click for her even until, like, you know, three quarters into the film that she actually did try to commit suicide. Right. That she actually, like, says it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, back to the film... Right now, she's like entered Claymore and she's meeting Whoopi Goldberg, who plays Valerie. And this is just such a credit to the filmmakers because Valerie in the memoir is is a character and she is a staple in the in the unit. But she is not like a fleshed out character like she is here. And she's not even a black woman in the memoir. Mm -hmm. Valerie was one of my favorite characters on this rewatch. Mm -hmm. And what kind of surprised me in the rewatch, too, was like, I think there's like a trope among films where characters are being administered into mental institutions that like everyone there is very mean and hard but there are a lot of like caring but complicated people at this facility not saying that they are all like not saying that none of them are committing damage as well but like they feel more human than just like oh they work there therefore they are a bad person they're like this evil like misery style nurse you know yeah she she says in the memoir like you know Every day I see like two or three therapists for like 10 or 15 minutes, but Valerie is the person who spends like the most time right. with us. And um, she's a very human character. I think she's she's incredibly well written. And um, Valerie shows Susanna around the woman's ward at Claymore. And as this is happening, we flash back to a conversation with Susanna and her high school guidance counselor. <laughs> her guidance counselor is basically hounding her because she... Um, is the only student who's not going on to college. And Susanna says, listen, I'm not going to burn my bra, drop acid, or march on Washington. I just don't want to end up like my mother. Mm -hmm. And the guidance counselor says, women today have more choices than that. And she says, no, they don't. Girl, not in the 60s. Not yet. Yeah. I think that like the choice of the filmmakers to make Valerie a black woman for the film in the midst of like the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination was a very genius way to like really root them in history mm -hmm. because like 1967 when people think of the 60s and like Woodstock they think of like oh you know like a coming of age and everybody was equal or I don't know what people think but like for women and for people of color it was not like an easy time to be alive. No, absolutely not. And even like when they kind of have that moment where they're watching the draft and they're putting up like these men with these birthdays are going into the war. I was like, oh, my God, there's like a whole other movie going on where like all the young men of the country are like freaking out about going to die somewhere random. Mm -hmm. And it was just like even more rooting you in the fact that this time in history was like probably fucking terrifying. I also agree. I love that they included like the reaction to the MLK shooting. Um and but that Valerie was, was off by her own in that moment. Like all yeah. the women were around the TV, like kind of appalled at the news. But we show her in a very quick shot of just like kind of a smoking a cigarette and like looking devastated. And mm -hmm. I was like, damn, that is like she doesn't have to say anything. And I know that character so much more by having that moment. Um, really well done. Yeah. I Like seriously, great job. And, and they touch more on Valerie's like race further into the film. But I mean... Every single character is incredibly fleshed out. Like un even in the book, in the memoir, like some characters are like, this is Georgina. She's schizophrenic. This mm -hmm. is, and they're like, they have one or two sentences describing them. And like, 
in the film, like right now, um, we are introduced to the cast and characters and um, they are not reduced to their diagnoses yeah. here. You don't even know their diagnoses most of the time. Yeah. For, for most of the movie, you don't know. So we meet Polly, who is played by Elizabeth Moss. And she's, um, she's the one with like the burn scars across her face and hands and stuff. And then we meet Georgina, who's played by Clea Duvall. Dude, this cast is so stacked. It's so, so incredibly good. And then um, we learn that Clea Duvall is Susanna's new roommate. And as Susanna is like unpacking her stuff in her room, we see that Lisa, who's played by Angelina Jolie, is being escorted by the police out of a taxi cab and back into the ward where she's escaped from. Ooh. Okay, just real quick. Okay. Of course. Ah! <laughs> okay, I, this is an evil character, like, or not evil, but definitely a bad person. But at the end of the day, holy shit, that character is everything. Is, is the Lisa character a big part of the memoir? Yes, Lisa is the, like, most main character in the memoir. And um, she has, like, a Susanna has so much love for Lisa in this book. And Lisa gets, like, the most fleshed out character even more than Susanna, I would even say, hmm. in the memoir itself. So it, it makes sense why she is such like a huge part in this film. And it's funny how you're saying like, I know she's supposed to be the villain, but Angelina Jolie said that um, in an interview, she genuinely thought that she was the only character who was sane in the entire film. And that's how she played it. Mm. She said, I was actually almost upset when people said I was so good at playing insane because I never thought she was insane. <laughs> she was just incredibly honest, which I guess made her seem crazy. Yeah, totally. People have likened her performance in this film as like Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I think it's because they have like a complete ability to adopt and believe everything that they're saying, even if what they're saying is like, quote unquote, crazy in their eyes and in their delivery. It's like absolutely true and the only truth. Yeah. And she also seems to be very much in control of herself until the very end or like she's tricking herself into thinking she's in control, but that control is still there. Mm -hmm. You know, like she's kind of the puppet master for some of these women and they like kind of follow her around like little puppies. And like Susanna is enamored with her like immediately, even though their first interaction is like Lisa rolling up on her being like, where is my old roommate? And like screaming and shouting in her face and she has to be removed physically and sedated. And so after that like altercation with Lisa, we flash back to Susanna's relationship with Toby, who's played by Jared Leto. And Jared Leto is so cute. He looks just like Zac Efron in this movie. That's 100% what I thought. I saw him <laughs> and I was like, I had to do the math. I was like, wait, Zac Efron in 1990-whatever would have been like fucking one. Like, okay, it's not him. Yeah. And then I had to look it up and see that it was in fact Jared Leto. Yeah. That's crazy. I hate Jared Leto and um, I'm glad he was drafted. Spoiler alert, because uh, I think he sucks. I love movies where something bad happens to him. Uh, <laughs> to Jared Leto. <laughs> to Jared Leto. I wonder if Morbius, I guess all of Morbius is just something bad happening to Jared Leto, not as a character, but as a human, because that movie yeah. busted so hard. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, if we can't talk about Bring It On, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, we cannot talk about Morbius. <laughs> so we flash back to her beginnings of a relationship with Toby, <laughs> ugly name, uh, who is played by Jared Leto. And during pillow talk, Susanna has like the most sexy little conversation about how she wants to kill herself. She's like, what would you do? And he's like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I mean, they bring in so many like verbatim quotes from this memoir and they do a really good job of that. And, and this is one of them like, you know, you miss the train, kill yourself. You like the movie, don't kill yourself. And 
she's she's saying all this kind of out loud, and Toby's like, can you please stop talking about it? It's stupid. <laughs> I mean, probably not the number one thing you should be talking about in bed the first time you have sex with someone, but eventually it's mm-hmm. going to come out. Eventually you're going to end up talking about death. I think that also Susanna's like, confusion as to where she fits in socially has to do with like everyone around her outside of the like psychiatric ward and these flashbacks is so enthralled with the like progressiveness of the 60s and everyone wants to be an ethnobotanist and everybody wants to drop acid and burn their bras or whatever and she's like does anybody want to talk about committing suicide and they're like no that's stupid (laughs) no you freak wake up yeah graduation's the best day of your life yeah I'm sure like when you live in a generation where they're embracing all these differences and they don't embrace yours it kind of makes you feel like really fucking weird Oh, yeah, absolutely. We flash back to the ward and we see that Toby's birthday has been called and he's been drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. Oh, well. Aww. Did they really do it like that, though? That's like really scary. Could you imagine like so, yeah. sitting down and being like, holy shit, that's my birthday? Like it's like the reverse thing of the lottery. It's like the <laughs> worst lottery ever. Oof. I know. And so in the next day while she's in therapy, I mentioned this because I think it kind of reflects how Susanna relates to her male counterparts in relationships as as she relates to females. But like her therapist is like, you know, why do you keep saying Toby's dead? Like he, he hasn't even left yet. He has like months to report to the military, the army. And she goes, I don't know. He was just like a nice guy, I guess. And she, in the memoir, she has You know, if you think her descriptions of these other women in the ward are like sparse, like she says maybe like two words about these people that are her boyfriends or like even Mm. the one that she eventually marries, she doesn't have like more than like two or three words to say about them. But Lisa. But Lisa, Lisa gets more screen time than the main character. (laughs) (laughs) So um, now we get the first real interaction between Lisa and Susanna, one that's not fueled by like rage and throwing things around and getting sedated. (laughs) And Lisa is just so fucking cool. Can we take a moment? She's so cool. Angelina Jolie is so hot. (laughs) (laughs) Just like she has the strangest face and they like cut the micro bangs on her wig so short. God. I think that might have been her hair because she does BTS interviews (laughs) and like Winona Ryder has her normal hair back and she doesn't. Commitment. Commitment. She's like, dye it the ugliest shade of blonde and cut those bangs half inch. Um, yeah, she, like, every line, every line she says, every facial expression, the way her eyebrows are, like, hella, hella, hella thin and plucked. Mm-hmm. That character is so good. Dude, she uh, she deserved every accolade that she received from this role. And her first interaction with Susanna is um, she basically tries to, like, suss Susanna out like Mm -hmm. you know you know does a quick interrogation and then eventually leaves and then I think that's when Susanna it clicks for her like oh she's like the top dog around here Mm -hmm. and people respect her and you know I don't know how I feel about her just yet but I know I'm gonna do every single thing she tells me to do no 100% (laughs) she has that moment where Lisa like blows a plume of smoke into the old woman's face that's sitting next to her and the old woman doesn't fucking budge and Lisa trots off and Winona does the same exact thing and the old woman's like asshole. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry. I thought that that was just something I could do to feel cool. Okay. Never mind. (laughs) And like, just it's, it's sweet when you read the memoir because she has nothing but good things to say about Lisa. In the first paragraph, she says, she was funny, Lisa. I can't think of her without smiling even now, which is very, very sweet. And she continues in the memoir to describe Lisa like as a queen and everybody is like kind of her 
her little bees and like without her presence in the ward, there was like no spirit. So, I mean, she said Toby was a nice guy. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me who she's trying to fall in love with. Yeah. So um, back at the ward, we see Lisa instructing Susanna to cheek her meds, uh, which she does, obviously, because she does whatever Lisa tells her to do. And then we meet Daisy, who is played by Brittany Murphy. This is my favorite character. If you thought I liked Lisa, you have like no idea how much I love Daisy. Wow, that's a pretty bold. I mean, Daisy's a wonderful character. Brittany Murphy does a great job. Mm -hmm. But Lisa, so. I think if we saw as much of Daisy as we saw of Lisa in this film, I think that she would contend for best supporting actress as well. Fair enough. Super fair enough. Yeah, she did a great job. So the role of Daisy, like I said, filled by Brittany Murphy. And she, in the book, she's considered like a seasonal event. She comes through the ward every year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. And she is not bulimic, but she has some sort of eating disorder where she's like obsessed with taking laxatives and she only eats like chickens that her dad gives her Mm -hmm. from the like rotisserie or something. And um, this is just a part of the book. This was like a lanyard because I didn't even expect this. Uh, Susanna writes, I'd noticed that Daisy was sexy. Even though she smelled and glowered and hissed and poked, she had a spark the rest of us lacked. Hmm. And then she goes on to say, this other character, the Martian's girlfriend was in love with her too. Too? Too. Also? Also. And this is like after she's describing like how her ass moves when she walks. She said like, oh, and this person was in love with her too. Oh, uh, I, I mean, and then you put Brittany Murphy in that role and you're like, oh, yes. I get it. A vixen. Yes. Uh, so we just see that like these um, patients are like cheeking their meds and trading their meds. And um, poor Daisy doesn't stand a fucking chance. I think everyone's seen this film. Uh, we'll get to that part later, but just just incredible, incredible acting. The next day while meeting with Susanna's parents, um, they let slip that Susanna has a borderline diagnosis. Borderline personality disorder is how it's said then. I, I think that since the description of it has changed, maybe even the name it's, has changed, but then it was considered borderline personality disorder. The whole like part of this scene that really freaked me out was that they were like withholding this diagnosis from the actual person. So like you are just going crazy being like, I feel like something's wrong with me, but not really like, and they don't even tell you when they have like a word to describe it and what like the characteristics are. Yeah. Like I, I don't know if it would be helpful or not to know, but I feel like in all the years I was feeling depressed, when I finally like could say out loud, like, I am depressed, it did help to know like it has a name and I can like converse about it with other people, mm-hmm. you know? So I just thought that was so fucked that they wouldn't even tell her about her own health yeah. in that way. Especially because like knowing like from her perspective, she's like grappling with the fact like, am I even crazy? Yeah. And they've like chalked her up to this whole diagnosis and they don't even tell her. And um, we'll get into her diagnosis later and like the controversy that surrounds like borderline personality disorder. But for right now, she's just like completely confused as to what that even fucking means. So later that night, Susanna, Lisa, they go through like the tunnels underneath the ward and they break into the therapist's office and they find um, their files, which has like all of their diagnoses in it. So I'm going to show you that scene really quick. Lisa thinks she's hot shit because she's a sociopath. I'm a sociopath. No, you're a dyke. Borderline personality disorder. An instability of self-image, relationships, and mood. Uncertainty about goals, impulsive in activities that are self-damaging, such as casual sex. (laughs) I like that. Social contrariness and a generally pessimistic attitude are often observed. Oh, that's me. 
That's everybody. Okay, for the listeners out there, there's a moment where someone else says, I'm a sociopath. And Lisa says, no, you're a dyke. And <laughs> I think it's meant to be a burn, but they like exchange this like really flirtatious look like they have some sort of like in secret with each other. And that's like part of their character you don't hear a lot about, but they are always hanging out together mm-hmm. and like semi holding hands and mm-hmm. like have their arms around each other. Like they're kind of buddy, 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 buddy. Like they're kind of always <laughs> rolling together. Yeah. And I think this clip is also important because Susanna lists all these things that are very common with just like most people Mm -hmm. who are just maybe transitioning in life or, you know, maybe who are just like growing up. And she has this part in in the memoir where she's like reading the actual like DSM description of borderline personality disorder. And she was like, I guess that's where I was, but I was also like a teenage woman. Yes, 100%. You're like learning so much about your life and existence. Mm -hmm. And just to say that, like, casual sex is, like, an indicator that you were mm-hmm. mentally unwell is mm-hmm. so dumb and dated. Yeah, let me let me find this part right here because it's, like, so good. I'm, like, reading the book for you, Lizzie. You're not even going to have to read this shit. <laughs> this disorder is more commonly diagnosed in women. Note the construction of that sentence. They did not write, this disorder is more common in women. It would still be suspect, but they didn't even bother trying to cover their tracks. (laughs) (laughs) So like, obviously, adolescent people, young women are, you know, unfairly going to be diagnosed with this disorder because of the things like casual sex. And, you know, what is casual sex in the 60s? It means a different thing for a woman than it would a man. Yeah, Winona says that in the scene with her therapist after this, right? Like, like how many men would a woman have to fuck to be considered promiscuous? Like 10, 5? And how many would a man? 10, 20, 109? You know, Mm -hmm. it's like this double standard is what is how I'm being seen as crazy and why Toby isn't here right now. Like Toby should be in a fucking (laughs) bed over there at the next ward. Yes. Because we're engaging in this together. Mm -hmm. And the professor that I fucked, we're engaging in this together. Like, why isn't he up in here? Mm Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. So <laughs> so the next day before Daisy is released, um, they all go to the ice cream parlor and um, Lisa very seductively orders a sundae. <laughs> I only mention this because the ice cream parlor where that was filmed now has like a girl interrupted sundae that they like serve people. Is it like whipped cream and cherries and, and uh, nuts? Nuts. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's just a regular sundae. It's just a sundae. <laughs> <laughs> and while they're... Um, with all the nuts, as Susanna calls them, um, she's approached by a woman who, whose husband she had slept with. And this woman is basically like, I know what you did and I hope they put you away forever. And Lisa just pops off on her. And um, the rest of patients like just lay into this woman before she basically just like runs away with her tail between her legs. So good. Like if you're like, why would you approach a whole group of women and try to, you know what I mean? Like you're just setting yourself up to fail. Like I could be sitting at a table with a woman I just met. And if someone came up to her and was like, you cheated on me, I'd be like. Burn, 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 burn. Yes. Wait, you did that? Okay, cool. Burn. <laughs> I heard it was like a pencil anyways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mentioned this scene because this is the first moment in the film where we see Susanna laugh. Yeah. Like sometimes she yeah. feigns a smile in exchanges, but this is the first time where she's actually like overcome with joy. Lovely and sad. Yeah. So uh, the next day, Daisy is released and we see kind of time pass and the season change. And Susanna's doing very well in the woman's ward. And, you know, all of this comes to like a screeching halt where she, when she's visited by Toby, Jared Leto. Wait, I have a question real quick. Sorry to stop mm-hmm. you. No. 
if her having casual sex is what got her into this place, how has she allowed male visitors and allowed to have casual sex with them? Like, I was just like, I mean, good for her. I'm glad. Mm -hmm. But also, like, what? (laughs) So they're, like, in the memoir, they describe these things called checks, which happen on, on, like, a varying basis depending on the patient. But because of her disorder, her diagnosis, and, like, how well she's been doing in the ward up until this point, she has, like, what is considered, like, the longest leash and so that's why she like tries to have sex with Toby in between like the 10, 15 minutes between her checks. Oh my God. And so Valerie suggests that they take a walk. Get some coffee. <laughs> yeah. And so they go downstairs and Toby tries to take Susanna into his car and tries to make a run to Canada because he doesn't want to serve in the Vietnam War. And Susanna says, I can't just leave. And he says like, you're not like these people. You're not crazy. And for the first time, she says, I tried to kill myself. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That was the first time she says it out loud. Mm -hmm. And she was like, look, I do want to leave here, just not with you. Oof. I mean, I appreciate it, I guess, that he wanted to run off with her. He didn't have to. And I guess he assumed she was having a miserable time. But she's like, I am making best friends with the hottest woman I've ever seen. (laughs) Would you please leave me alone? (laughs) Yeah, like she should have introduced Toby to Lisa and be like, do you get it? why I'm fucking here. She's so fucking hot. Oh my God. Lisa would have eaten Toby and spit him out into oh my little God. tiny pieces. Yes. Like, like clockwork, literally with her eyes closed, she could have ruined this man's entire life. <laughs> so, um, in the middle of the night, Polly has an episode and she's taken to like seclusion is how they call it. And in efforts to make her feel better, Susanna and Lisa like sing a song outside her door and they end up getting like in a lot of trouble because Susanna like kisses an orderly and Lisa is then sent to like maximum security and Susanna doesn't see her for a very long time. Like of all the things they have done, like this is the one that sent them away. Mm-hmm. I guess like kissing an orderly is bad, but Lisa didn't even do that. Oh, Lisa did drug the nurse. Oh, that's right. We get that for a moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Got it. That would kind of do it, I feel. So once Lisa has been taken away to maximum security, Susanna basically self-medicates with all the medication she's been cheeking and she falls into this like comatose state of like wallowing. And after a few days of that, Valerie drops her into a tub of ice cold water. And we get the like, in my opinion, the like Oscar bait scene of this entire movie where Susanna is like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And she's like yelling at Valerie. And Valerie says, I've put up with a lot of crazy shit from a lot of crazy people, but you are not crazy. Mm. And this is when Susanna (laughs) says some fucking racist fucking shit. It's not pretty. To Valerie. And like I said, Valerie's character wasn't black in the book and there is no like mentions of race in um, the memoir. But I think that this was done really well, especially with like the character that they have created for Valerie. And Susanna says, is that what you learned from your advanced studies at night school for Negro welfare mothers? I think she's trying to say the absolute most hurtful shit that she possibly can. And it's bad. Yeah. It's real bad. Because other characters before are trying to get Valerie's goat by saying racist shit and it doesn't work. And Susanna continues and says, you ain't no doctor, Miss Valerie. You ain't nothing but a black nursemaid. At this moment, I was like, is she just being hurtful or is she being hurtful and telling the truth? You know what I mean? Like, is she also a racist or is she just like kind of 
playing the crazy role to show Valerie, like, oh, you don't think I'm crazy? Like, Mm -hmm. I fucking am crazy. And, like, I'm going to push you in a way as hard as I can. Like, I've seen Lisa do a million times, you know? I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, you're saying, like, is she being mean or is she speaking her true perspective? Yeah, out of, like, deep emotion. Yeah, I think... I never second guessed it on any of my watches of this movie that this was just like a spitting, like evil thing that she's mm-hmm. saying in like this, this kind of torment. And Valerie knows it too. Mm-hmm. She very quickly just face drops and goes, you're just throwing it away. Yeah. Like she's like that. You're not going to hurt me with that. Like I know what you're trying to do, but you can't get to me. Yeah. And it's, I, I really like this scene. I think it's really powerful. I think it shows, it like serves the purpose of showing that Susanna is so far removed from every version of herself that she's just like spitting fire at this point. At like the one person who's there all the time. Mm -hmm. And I I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was trying to understand like how like psychologists and therapists like regard this memoir and this movie and like unanimously across the board. I mean, they, everybody has different perspectives, but like they all said that like a person in Valerie's position, like the head nurse on this this floor, like on a women's ward, is the person who is most equipped to deal with their changes in mood. And these are the people that know them the best and they get like absolutely no fucking credit for it. Yeah. No, that's probably one of the hardest jobs on the planet, Mm -hmm. especially because according to Valerie, she's got like two kids at home and she's a single mom and like doing all this shit, Mm -hmm. like putting up with all these crazy white people shit all day Mm -hmm. and then going home and being a mom. It's like, yeah, I mean, if let's like talk about the fucking wealth disparity in this film. So I was Googling Susanna Kaysen just for this and her dad's name on Wikipedia was Blue. And I was like, what? So Susanna's father was the deputy national security advisor for John F. Kennedy during his like presidential administration. You know, there is like definitely few mentions, but you can kind of get the sense that like everyone here is rich. Like you can only afford to be in this ward and at this hospital if you are the child of a rich family. So in the memoir, she says that it costs upwards of like $60 a day. And if you do the like calculation, that's over $560 a day. And she was there for over a year and a half. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and Daisy's character, like it's kind of said like, oh, she's affords to have her. She can afford to have her own private room. And like we all know why, blah, blah, blah. I'll get into that later. But like I'm sure these nurses aren't getting paid. To the point that they're having to deal with all this crazy shit. Yeah, no, I mean, like actual literal dust. And I mean, it's it's referenced more in the memoir, but like this is a place for rich people to toss the inconveniences of insanity that don't suit them, you know. And her parents are very much the same in the memoir. They don't really care if she's crazy. They don't really care if she's okay, but they just can't deal with her anymore. So they just like offload her at some major expense to go like figure her shit out for like a year and a half. Well, they say Lisa's been there for like eight years. Like who the fuck are Lisa's parents? Like the Trumps? <laughs> yeah, no, they don't mention like how Lisa affords to to be there in the memoir. But like in the film, it's implied that Lisa has a like huge disregard for wealthy people. Like she has a disdain for them, I should say. And we get that a little bit more when we see how she interacts with Daisy towards the end of this film. Mm-hmm. So. After this exchange Susanna has with Valerie, Lisa breaks into Susanna's room at night and says that they have to break out because they've been giving her shocks. Oof. You know, I didn't know if to believe that or not. Like at first I did and I was like, oh my God, they're like torturing her. 
But then, like, as the film went on and I saw how she was kind of acting, I was like, I wonder if she just said that to, like, get um, Suzanne to leave closer, um, to leave faster, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it's never really clarified, but it's just part of that that I was like, yeah, if someone told me that, I'd be like, oh, my God, this place is evil. We need to get out of here. Yeah. They talk about, in the memoir, they talk about maximum security and what's, what that looks like. Susanna goes to visit someone there. Um, who is like escalated from medium security where she's at to maximum security. And it's like such a sad and depressing place. Like she visits this person, they had like wiped their own feces like all over the wall. Oh my God. Yeah, they have like barely to no stimulation and their room is like a mattress on the floor. It's, I think it is a really bad place. I believe Lisa in the film when she says like they've been giving her shocks because she looks fucked up. Jesus Christ. Like how is that supposed to help someone? I feel like that would just be causing way more damage than any progress they could have made at that point. No, I agree. I think that like nobody really knows how to solve any of these problems that these women have. So they just like, they're trying to run the gamut on these women and they end up like causing more harm than good. 100%. So as they're hitchhiking, they they have a plan to go to Daisy's and then go to work at Disney World. And (laughs) as they're hitchhiking to Daisy's, they're in a van with a bunch of other hippies and they're smoking weed. And in like a moment of like tenderness, Susanna kisses Lisa like on the lips in like a giggly little way. Yeah. And she has like butterflies. You can tell. She's like just really sweet about it. And I mean, how did you take that when you saw the film? It's like what I wanted her to do. I didn't remember this kiss, um, but I knew that this film was subtextual. So whenever she was like reaching over to like lay a kiss on Angelina Jolie, I thought it was going to land on her cheek. And when it didn't, I was like, okay. Okay. So what I have been seeing is true. (laughs) I kind of took it as like, she's feeling really free in this moment. Like, oh my God, I'm out of there. Like relief. Like we're going to go on this journey. You know, we're not going to get to Disney World, obviously, but maybe we'll just be able to like survive together and have like some good times. But like in the next scene, it basically goes all the way back to shit, (laughs) which probably really sucks. But yeah, I I mean, I'm with you. Like it doesn't seem as much as a declaration of love as it seems like a relief and like an excitement of the moment that they're in not knowing like what's going to come next. I don't Mm -hmm. think Susanna is as like delusional about the future as Lisa is. I think she's like, kind of more in tune with reality like she might just have to come back but like for right now they're free and they're together yeah it probably felt really good to leave and to leave with lisa who's like her number one in this place Mm -hmm. and if i could throw it back to when she was telling toby like i want to leave i just don't want to leave with you yeah (gasps) yeah i want to leave with lisa yes bitch me too (laughs) me too i also want to go to florida (laughs) with lisa So they make it to Daisy's. Unfortunately, you know where this is going. This was so hard to watch. Yes, this is like what people think of when they think of this movie. Mm -hmm. When I remember this movie, this is like the end of the movie. I forget that there's anything after this, but they get to Daisy's house and um, Daisy lets them in because she wants Valium and Daisy gives them like a few dollars and Lisa says, we don't need your daddy's money. And Daisy's like, well, then leave it and give me the Valium. Hmm. And... She grab Lisa grabs Daisy's arms and reveals that she's been like cutting herself up. And um, I have a scene to show you. You're just jealous, Lisa. Because I got better. Because I was released. Because I have a chance. At a life. 
didn't release you because you're better, Daisy. They just gave up. You call this a life, huh? Taking daddy's money, buying your dollies and your knickknacks, and eating his fucking chicken, fattening up like a prize fucking heifer. You change the scenery, but not the fucking situation, and the warden makes house calls. Yeah, what, what did that make you feel? It made me really frustrated and confused about Lisa. Like, why is she lashing out so hard at Daisy? I just haven't really been able to puzzle through, like, because we haven't seen Lisa be, like, too mean to anyone other than people of authority or, I guess, people that have just, like, approached her in any sort of way. But Daisy has never done that, and especially not in this moment. Like, they're in Daisy's house. She let them in. Mm -hmm. She's, like, offering them money to go buy pancakes in the morning. She's, like, letting them sleep there. So I guess my only guess as to why she would be so angry is is what Lisa's saying. Like, she is mad that Lisa was able to get out. Um, but it's really cruel. And yeah, it was a really hard scene to watch. We see a little bit in, in the film, like they show like Lisa slapping like Georgina and, and she's like quite cutting to Daisy before she's like discharged. But like what we pick up on the most, like on the second or whatever watch is that like Lisa really is like disgusted by wealth and that mm. like Daisy is like a princess living in a fantasy land and oh your daddy's gonna buy you whatever and mm. I think she just takes the opportunity to like twist the knife and like in, in the scene with Susanna and Valerie where Valerie's like you're just throwing it away I think that was Susanna's first instance of throwing it away and she very quickly like pulls herself back from that but I think Lisa has no control she like will see a situation and she will like bomb it with like abandon and this scene is really hard to watch. It gets really like dark and disgusting. And then it's followed quickly by this, like, I believe is like the most memorable scene of this movie when Susanna comes back from the market in the morning and that song is playing mm -hmm. and she goes upstairs to check on Daisy and Daisy has um, hung herself. Yeah. Oh, awful. <sighs> that scene is just so well shot and like yeah constructed it's it's like still creeps me out to to this day yeah it's really realistic and great performance on the hand of Winona Ryder yeah and Lisa takes the money out of Daisy's pocket and skips town Oof. and Susanna goes back to the woman's ward apologizes to Valerie um in a very sincere way and um she's like in turn to get released and the night before her release Lisa has taken her journal and I mean Lisa had had just been like returned to the ward like a night before Susanna's like scheduled release and she she wakes up in the middle of the night and she goes down into the tunnels underneath the the facilities and finds that Lisa has her journal and is reading all of her personal thoughts aloud to all the women in the ward who like now hate her because mm -hmm. she said some very like cutting and judgmental things about them. And Susanna asks her like, why are you doing this? And Lisa says like, I'm playing the villain, baby, just like you want. Yeah. And Susanna gets like so scared that she's like starts running away from her in the tunnel because she has like this like um, a syringe full of like a medication that I think will just like sedate her. So Susanna's running from Lisa and Lisa's like, what, you don't like me anymore? She's like screaming at the top of her voice and she backs Susanna into a corner and Susanna finally says, no one cares if you die, Lisa, because you're dead already. You're not free. You need this place to feel alive. And like Lisa like 
drops like Tinkerbell without her claps like to the floor and just like sobs. Yeah, like crumples. What do you think Lisa like wants from all these people that she's putting down? I guess like you're saying Angelina Jolie played this like as if Lisa believed she was the only sane one. So she could be like trying to point out how crazy everyone is and make them more crazy so that she continues to be the most sane one. Mm hmm. But do you think that that is enough of a reason to, like, basically drive a woman to killing herself? I think that Lisa only sees herself and, you know, as a sociopath regards herself as better elite above these people. And she plays with them to, you know, to it elicit a reaction. And in, in the memoir, Lisa basically plays with things until she gets bored mm -hmm. to the detriment of everything. And all of these relationships just seem more like that to me. Yeah. Yeah, after this, the movie gets wrapped up pretty quickly, but not before Susanna and Lisa have like a final moment where Lisa is like in seclusion, sedated, like strapped to a table and Susanna comes and like paints her nails. And Lisa says, you know, I'm not really dead and I'm going to miss you. And Susanna says, no, you're not. You're going to get out of here and come and see me. And then the film ends like happily ever after. For Susanna. For Susanna, yeah. Ish. <laughs> Ish, yeah. The, the memoir goes a little bit more into like how her life gets tied up after this, but she basically just says like, it wasn't like I was cured or recovered, whatever they wrote on my like sheet. I was still me. I just like had to deal with it outside of this place. Yeah. So reception wise, uh, the film was actually received like mixed among huh. critics. No which way. I was surprised by because I thought everybody loved it. Like, what are what are the critiques of this film? Like, how could you even critique it? Uh, some people say that the plot is unsurprising or unoriginal. And they said, aside from, like, Jolie's performance, it was sparse and um, predictable. What? I don't know. I, I can guarantee that was, like, a man saying that. I'd seen it before, and I was still like... <gasps> 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 With a budget of $40 million, it grossed $48.3 million. So, I mean, not a massive success, but not a failure. $8.3 million is like not nothing. Yeah, for a drama too, I feel like that's pretty good. I'm surprised to hear that the budget was so high, I guess. Like, because in my mind, I was like, are any of these people actually stars yet? Like, I guess Winona, of course. But like Brittany Murphy and Jared Leto and Whoopi, like, were they all already still famous? I think Whoopi and Winona were the biggest names to this. There was um, the woman who plays uh, Susanna Kaysen's mother also was like Academy mm. Award nominated or has an Academy Award, but she wasn't like on the poster. She has like a few lines. So I think it really was just like Whoopi and Winona. And Angelina Jolie was known because her dad, but like had like maybe two or three roles before this point. Yeah. Huh. I'm surprised to hear that, but I think it's pretty flawless. Aside from Angelina Jolie's winning of supporting actress role at the 2000s Academy Awards, it received no other um, recognition from the Academy. Surprise, surprise. You know, this is my one fun fact about this film. May I share it? Please. I've already shared this in our, uh, I think our Oscar reactions video from this year's uh, awards, but Angelina Jolie is the first openly queer person to win an acting Academy Award. Openly, I say. Um, and I think for that, extremely well-deserved. Like she acted the shit out of this role. Absolutely. Like, she, I don't think she could have done a better job. And like, people like to spread these rumors that maybe Winona was displeased because she had originally expected herself to get some 
recognition from the Academy and Angelina kind of stole the show. But I think even reading the book, you know, that like Susanna is a very passive character. Like Lisa has really all of the like powerhouse in her. I, I don't think she would have been surprised by this. And, and Winona Ryder has said that like all she really wanted to do was make Susanna Kaysen happy because even to this day, Susanna Kaysen is like alive and well. Huh. Does she, do you know if Susanna Kaysen like liked the movie? Yeah, she loved it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she said she like met Winona and, and like immediately felt a kinship towards her and is like really happy with how the film turned out. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, and I haven't talked about this at all, but I'm like a massive fan of Winona Ryder. She is one of my top five favorite actresses of all time. Yeah. Um. So... If only there were more like ensemble movies with Monona being this good with like this many women, but they are kind of few and far between, but she did so good. Yeah. And I don't think it's a surprise that this is like one of her best roles. And it's also the thing that she like brought to market and championed herself. Like, yeah. unfortunately in Hollywood, sometimes you have to make roles that you want to see because nobody really is making them for women at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, even at this point in time, like Charlize Theron heading Atomic Blonde from start to finish. And that was like fucking 2017. Like, here we, here we are. She's like, well, if I can't find a fucking role that I want, I'm just going to make it my damn self. And yeah. I'm like, the more the merrier, because I think those films end up being better anyway. Okay, Lizzie, do you want to move right on to the scores? Score, score. Yeah, let's score it. Um, okay, this week, I'm going to try to describe how the score works. Ready? Please. Okay, so... Each of us vote on a scale of 1 to 10 how gay the movie is and how good the movie is. And then we average those scores together to get a single score out of 10. Does that make sense? That's absolutely right. Okay, Lizzie, how gay is this movie? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's not canonically queer, but I do believe... That Susanna and Lisa and Lisa's friend, the Dyke, and maybe the woman they call Dr. Dyke, the therapist, are all queer women. <laughs> I just feel it. So for my gaydar, I'm going to give it a five. Yeah, I, I'll, I'm going to give it a five as well. I think I would give it a four, but I think the overall theme of like that's conveyed between her relationships with all these women, um, I think it's more of like a five. Yeah. Okay, cool. And how good is this movie? Um, it's a 10. Yeah, that's a 10 for me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. This is wow. one of my favorite movies like of all time. You know, um, while Sam tallies up the score, I know Sam owns a very small private collection of DVDs mm -hmm. that are only movies that she truly loves. And this is like one of those like 20 films that she owns. So she yes. means it when yes. she says it. When I love a movie, like I love a movie and I know it inside and out. So I was trying to really pull myself back with this episode from not going too far into all the little things that I know, but like, I really, really love this movie. And with that being said, I'm glad to say that it is a 7.5 subtextual score, which is, fares pretty well for a movie that isn't like overtly very queer. Yeah, I think it's lovely and that feels right. Um, so it actually kicks uh, Happiest Season out of our top 10. Which is like the gayest Christmas movie of all time, but was so bad, the score cannot reconcile. <laughs> yeah, so now with the subtextual score of 7.5, it's actually our, our ninth most well-received film Great. here at Subtextual. So it's in our top 10. Yes. 
Um, so before I leave you guys, I do want to talk about uh, the title of this memoir and the title of the film. They wrap it up pretty succinctly in, in a sentence or two in the beginning of the film, but actually the title is taken from a painting Susanna sees in a museum in a fleeting moment when she's a teenager. So I'm going to read for you guys the first time she sees that painting, and then I'm going to have Lizzie read the last time she sees the painting once she's released from the woman's ward. Her brown eyes stop me. It's the painting from whose frame a girl looks out, ignoring her beefy music teacher whose proprietary hand rests on her chair. The light is muted, winter light, but her face is bright. I look into her brown eyes and I recoiled. She was warning me of something. She had looked up from her work to warn me. Her mouth was slightly open as if she had just drawn a breath in order to say, don't. I moved backwards, trying to get beyond the range of urgency, but her urgency filled the corridor. Wait, she was saying, wait, don't go. I didn't listen. I went out to dinner with my English teacher and he kissed me. And I went back to Cambridge and failed biology. And eventually I went crazy. Mm. And so Lizzie, I'm going to have you read um, the last time she sees this painting. She had changed a lot in 16 years. She was no longer urgent. In fact, she was sad. She was young and distracted, and her teacher was bearing down on her, trying to get her to pay attention. But she was looking out, looking for someone who could see her. This time I read the title of the painting, Girl Interrupted at Her Music. Interrupted at her music, as my life had been. Interrupted in the music of being 17, as her life had been, snatched and fixed on canvas. One moment made to stand still and to stand for all the other moments, whatever they would be or might have been. What life can recover from that? I'm taking this book with me. <laughs> Take it, Lizzie. I, I hope you I hope you enjoy it because I really did. Okay, thanks for going on this little roller coaster with me. I mean, I felt like this was I, I had to strap you down so I could talk about this movie for like a million hours. <laughs> I sat firmly in that chair and I said, I'm not going anywhere. Hell yeah. All right. Cheers, y'all. Cheers. See you next week. Subtextual is produced by Lee Garcia and Bruno Doria. Engineered by Lee Garcia. Your hosts are Lizzie Guitro and Sam De La Fuente. Editing by Lizzie. Music by DJ No. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Letterboxd at SubtextualPod. If you'd like to support the show, feel free to find us on patreon.com slash subtextualpod. <laughs>